Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In the summer of 1940, Britain stood against the possibility of an imminent Nazi invasion. Hand-picked groups of ordinary men were formed into top-secret auxiliary units known as scallywags, trained to act as saboteurs and assassins. In a new series of wartime thrillers, Australian author V.M. Knox has created the character of Clement Wisdom, a humble East Sussex vicar who is called upon to lead a local team of scallywags, creating a tension between his faith and his patriotic duty. Gobbins opened a file and picked out a piece of paper. We are envisaging groups or cells of approximately six to eight men each, with a 15-mile radius of ground to patrol. These groups, which the Prime Minister somewhat euphemistically calls scallywags, will only become operational on the broadcast of a word. That word is Cromwell. What we are envisioning for certain selected men is more than home guard defence and raising the alarm. Your job would be to act behind enemy lines, targeting and killing high-ranking German officers, as well as blowing up bridges, railways, petrol depots. In fact, anything the Germans could use to expedite their advance to the capital. Clement knew he was staring. He felt overwhelmed with all that Gubbins was saying but he knew well enough what it meant. It is a suicide mission. In this edition of Historical Fiction, VM Knox talks to History Hits' Rob Weinberg about her novels, In Spite of All Terror and If Necessary Alone, where historical fact meets crime fiction and the murky world of espionage. This is Historical Fiction. Vicky Knox, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me on your show. Tell us about this series of detective novels that you've started set during the Second World War. Well, it came about from a question on QI. It was a very early programme when Stephen Fry was the um, anchor man, And the question asked was, who or what were the scallywags? And they turned out to be these clandestine cells of guerrilla fighters that had been set up by the UK government in the early days of World War II. France had fallen much more quickly than they anticipated and Dunkirk had happened and there was a group of people who realised that Britain was probably going to be next. And rather than be caught, a little bit like the French had been, 
without a resistance movement in place. And they, of course, then had to set up their resistance movements during the occupation of the Nazis. The British decided to set up this network of organised resistance movement. So they were men selected from the restricted occupations and cells of about six to eight men per cell. They were all men, no women involved. And there were 638 of these cells around Great Britain. So when I started discovering all of this, I was absolutely fascinated. And then I stumbled on the fact that their identities were so secret that no one could know who they were. There was one person who knew who they were, and that was the local senior policeman. Now, the internet went on to say that in the event of an invasion, that senior policeman became the cell's first victim. Now, it was also very quick to say, no, 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 this would never happen. This is Britain. Now, things like that don't happen in Britain. You don't kill off your own senior policeman. But it sounded very plausible to me, and I thought it would make a really good story. So I did quite a lot of work on investigating the auxiliary units and who was in them and that sort of thing. And I chose a vicar as the main character because as far as I can tell, and I'm quite happy to be corrected on this if someone proves me wrong, but as far as I'm aware, there were no vicars ever involved in the auxiliary units. And I chose a vicar for two reasons. No one could ever say, I think you've written about my grandfather or my uncle or something like that. But also it added a dimension to the character that I kind of liked. I liked the idea of a vicar who'd lived a quiet, sedentary, rural life getting involved in these things. East Sussex would certainly have had their patrols. And I did speak to people from the auxiliary unit that nice guy called Stuart Angel, with whom I met in Lewis, or some years ago now. And then, more latterly, I went to Coles Hill, where they were sent for their training. They were given a very limited amount of training, but they did go back periodically through the time that they were on standby. Of course, 1940 was the big year. And as I say when I give my book talks... I think the Battle of Britain was a true turning point in history and probably doesn't get that amount of attention that perhaps it should because certainly the Germans would have invaded. They certainly had plans to invade and I think Cookmere Haven was uh, front and centre there. So that's where I decided and, and so I went and walked the ground and walked the South Downs way and and went to Rye, and oh, I love Rye. Just a wonderful little town, wonderful history, full of smuggling history, and I stayed at the Mermaid, and so uh, anyone who, who knows that little place is going to recognise it in the book. And the book does start quite slowly because I wanted to convey that the main character has for 20 years led a very quiet rural existence. So you can't take somebody who's led that kind of life and throw them into being kind of superheroes. It just wouldn't go together. So the book starts quite, not glacially slow, but slower. And then gradually it will start to ramp up, which is, I felt, more realistic than just throwing him in in chapter one. By the end of the book one, he's no longer a vicar and he's involved with the Secret Intelligence Service 
and I created a sort of SOE role for him. SOE nearly always went to Fortress Europe, but I made him a bit of a well, troubleshooter in Britain. So you were born and bred in Australia. Why the fascination with Britain, the Second World War and the south of England in particular? Well, because of the topic, the scallywags and the auxiliary units, and the question asked on QI was a British unit and they existed. As far as I know, they only existed in Britain. So it sort of selected me rather than me selecting it. But, you know, I'm old enough to know that when I was at school, our history was British history and Australian history really, and I think it was in my middle year of high school, that we studied Australian history. But in those days, Australian history was from 1788 onwards or 1770 onwards. So all of my education was very much British-based. And I remember when my father went to the UK for the first time in the late 50s, Australia didn't even have their own passports. They were British passports. So we perceived ourselves as British, and I was certainly raised that way, that you were sort of going home when you went to Britain. So I don't know, it's just in the blood, I think. (laughs) In your research into the scallywags, did you get any sense at any point that they were actually poised, ready to do what they were trained to do? It's very interesting you raise that because they were formed in the your summer of 1940 and they were not stood down until 44 they had access to weapons that the ordinary military didn't have they all had sten guns and sten guns were a mixed blessing they did jam at times but they also had the fairbairn sykes commando knife and these knives i actually have one they're about 30 centimeters long i bought one at a militaria auction they're double-bladed knives and they have one purpose and so all these um, auxiliary unit people were issued with these and bombs and they learned how to use time pencils and explosives and I do believe they would have done them now interestingly I gave a book talk to a, a senior group and an elderly man got up to thank me for coming and he said I'm amazed, he said, because last year my brother, who still lives in South Wales, rang me and said, our uncle has died, would you come back and help me go through his possessions, etc. And we found a military uniform and we had no idea who was ever in the army. There were no words on anything, just he said one little badge, a blue and red badge with numbers on it. No words. And he said, we've never been able to discover and the military wouldn't tell us what he was involved in. He said, and I've just today learned what he was involved in and prepared to do. And he said, I find it quite incredible. But I think that's what happens, isn't it? You know, when you're confronted with an enemy who is prepared to take your home or to kill you are confronted with this dilemma. What do I do? Do I save my people? I mean, I because he, the main character, Clement Wisdom, is a vicar, I interviewed a lot of clerics and said, would you do this, you know, if you were called upon to do it? And one in particular was very helpful, the Venerable Terry Dean. He said, it is within the Christian ethic to give your life for others. So even though they were asked to kill 
Germans, it sat okay with him. In fact, the seven ministers that I interviewed, without exception, all of them said yes. If it meant their families and their loved ones being killed or hanged or whatever, yes, they would be involved, yes, they would pull the trigger. So that was an interesting one. A loud and violent noise woke Clement. He could hear Helen's frantic voice in the hallway. He jumped out of bed and opened the door to the corridor. Do you know what is happening, Clement? James was shouting. He knew it was not a thunderstorm, but something much more serious. James, do you have a crypt under the church? We do. Take Helen and get into it as fast as possible. Don't forget your gas masks. With each passing second, the low droning increased until it roared in the darkness above them. The unstoppable barrage, so loud that it passed through one's very core. Then came the detonation. Clement grabbed his dressing gown and wrapping it round himself, reached for his gas mask, then ran downstairs. Moore opened the door to the street. The sky was dark. Less than a quarter moon. People were gathering on the street, struck with astonishment at what was happening. But the sight of the local vicar opening the church was enough for many to follow. Above them, Clement saw a single beam from a nearby searchlight strobe across the night sky, and cross with another some miles distant. Caught in its ferocious glare were the dark and ominous shapes of aeroplanes, hundreds of them passing through the piercing shaft of light. The incessant noise thundered on, only punctuated by the long screeching sound of falling bombs as they wailed towards the earth. So it's made quite clear to Clement Wisdom, your vicar, when he's first brought to the ministry at the beginning of the book, that this is basically going to be a suicide mission and yes. that the squad that he puts together of local characters, mm. they're not going to survive this. That's if... right. They did have a life expectancy of two weeks, which is quite extraordinary. I've been down into the bunkers, one of the things at Coles Hill. It's an interesting place, Coles Hill. Uh, sadly, the building burnt down in 1952, but the estate is still there and you can actually go into one of these bunkers. They're completely concealed. And uh, my husband and I were there some years ago, 2016, I think, and we were there the day before the National Trust opened it up, and we'd walked through this forest, and then the next day they'd opened it up, and we realised we'd walked right over the top of it, and we had not seen it at all. But I can tell you, they are deep and they are black. <laughs> it's not a place you'd want to go to. <laughs> Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So there are two books now, In Spite of All Terror and If Necessary Alone. Why did you think that this subject in particular lent itself to crime novels as opposed to just straight historical adventure stories? Yes. I mean, in some respects, the stories grew of their own accord. When I discovered that the local senior policeman had to be bumped off as the first person if uh, and when they were assembled, and in fact they were assembled on the 7th of September, the word for the groups to assemble was Cromwell, and uh, it was to be broadcast, and they did actually assemble. So whether, of course, it is true about them killing off the local senior policeman, that's conjecture. But for a crime writer, oh, that's too good a story. <laughs> Couldn't leave that one alone. <laughs> Up until that point, they're sort of members of the Home Guard, so Images of Dad's Army yes, comes to mind. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And, you know, that is funny. Yes, they were very funny, but sad in a way because... They weren't all dithering old twits, you know. They were young men, some of them. They were just restricted occupations and prepared to put their life on the line. I've done quite a lot of reading. There's an excellent book. I think it's called On Killing. I forget who wrote it, an American, I think. And he talks about the psychology behind people prepared to kill. There are a type of people called the hero type who can kill but they very rarely do. It will take a major event or a major threat for them to do this. They are not psychopaths. They are people who will also kill, but for different reasons. His book came about because he was looking into weapons found at Gettysburg. They unearthed a lot of rifles, and they found one in particular had been filled 23 times with a ball and shot, because the man behind the gun didn't want to shoot somebody else. So they realised that in order to get an effective military, they were going to have to deal with facing another man that you could relate to. And they went on to say about the further away from your victim, the easier it is. So if you're in a, an aeroplane and you're dropping bombs, well, you're not looking at your victim in the eye. So it's easier to drop a bomb than it is to plunge a bayonet, for example, into somebody. It's an interesting psychology on killing. You trained as a primary school teacher, then you worked as a nurse, then you worked as an opera singer... <laughs> Then you worked for the cathedral in Sydney. Yes. You've worked in real estate. Why did you come to writing? And how did you come to writing? 
Oh, well, that's an interesting one because I loved opera singing, but of course I had a family and Australia has one opera company and they don't employ a lot of people. You do the few weeks, eight to ten weeks worth of uh, training and rehearsal time and then, you know, you're back out on the street. Well, you have to have another job because if you've got a mortgage and school fees to pay, well, you've got to do something. I really enjoyed singing and I sang for some amazing people and had a wonderful time as a youngster. But then that creativity will bumble out in some other way. And when you get, you know, too many double chins and (laughs) and too many wrinkles, they don't really want to know you. (laughs) So my husband had an estate agency, and so I started to write some procedure manuals. Well, nobody reads procedure manuals. They are the most boring things imaginable. It's like reading the Factory Shops and Industries Act of 1962, you know, it's right up there with the best possible sleeping pill. So I decided the only way to get people to read it was to make it funny or in some way interesting. So I tried to make them as funny as I could. And when I'd finished it, I'd so enjoyed the writing process that I just thought, look, I think I'd like to do this. I'd just, I'd like to write now. And uh, so I'm self-taught, but I've been writing for about just a bit over 10 years. I made every mistake, every mistake, and just gradually learned. And I have a wonderful editor in Janet Lawrence, who was a former chairperson of the um, British Crime Writers Association. It's funny, actually, it's a CWA. Well, in Australia, the CWA stands for the Country Women's Association. (laughs) (laughs) And they make scones and lamingtons. (laughs) And of course, there are detectives in crime novels. I'm thinking of Donna Leons or Inspector Morse, who are opera lovers. Have you ever thought of bringing those together? Do you know, I used to love to watch the Morse series because for those who know, whomever put that together, that was very, very smart because the opera that plays in the background of Inspector Morse series will have a relationship to the plot. So if you know the opera that is playing in the background, you'll almost be able to pick who done it because you know the opera. So that was very clever. Invariably some poisoning or yes, dagger yes, or yes, concealed yes, person right. in the attic. I, I think yeah. Forza <laughs> del Destino is probably the one that has, you know, if anything bad can go on, it's probably should be daytime soap stuff because whatever can go wrong does. <laughs> she falls in love with the man who kills her father and all that <laughs> stuff that you'd only ever get in opera. Can I ask you a little bit about your process? You've talked about how you did your research for this series of novels, but then how do you go about structuring a plot, especially a crime plot, because there are obviously going to be a lot of threads that you need to bring in at different points. How do you do that? I mean, I've heard people interviewed who... And it seems to me that writers fall into one of two camps. Some people will work for a year, if not more, on the synopsis. And then when they have an intricate synopsis, they'll write the story. I can't do that. I'm I'm a fly-by-the-seat-of-the-pants kind of person. So I will start to write. The wonderful thing about computers is you can cut and paste. I never get rid of anything. I might not use it in that book, but I might, I've got a folder I call pastes if I particularly like the structure of a sentence. And I love smithing sentences. I enjoy words. I love words. 
and I like pace. I think there's a rhythm. You talk about music and writing. I think there is a rhythm to the sentence structure. If you have a boring da-da, di-di, da-da, di-di, da-da rhythm to your sentence and you repeat it, da-da, di-di, da-da, 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 di-di, di-di, da-da, da-da, boring. So it has to have some kind of da-da, da-da, di-di, da-da, 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 da-da-da-da. You know, it, it's got to have that or the reader loses interest in the book. I will just start writing. And frequently I will find that my first page will end up being about chapter six. And so I will start with something. But I remember hearing, I think it was Geoffrey Archer interviewed, and he said things like, well, the book just begins and it just happens, but you mightn't keep it like that. You might change it. But I think the important thing is to start. You know, I know people who have to go off and do courses before they begin anything. But I think, actually, you should just start writing. Just put it down. And sometimes you'll find, as I do, in the first chapter, in fact, I think even the first page of the second book, I kill off his wife. And I remember thinking, oh, do I want to do that? And I don't even know where it came from. It just came out. Something about, but that was before, before the war, before all manner of things, but mostly before Mary died. And I went, oh, do I want to kill Mary? So I I just left it and thought, well, we'll soon work it out. But I found that actually it really fitted what was going on because the first book is set in Clement's village. He knows the village. He's lived there for 20 years. He knows the town. He knows the people. He was born and raised in Rye, so he knows East Sussex backwards. In the second book, I send him up to Caithness where he knows nobody. It's a rural community, so buildings are widespread and he doesn't know anything about the county. He doesn't know anyone there. He's completely alone. So he's really thrown in at the deep end. And there were many times when I did things to Clement that I thought, how on earth am I going to get you out of this? I don't know. It just comes. And do you find that at certain points you have to go back and check historical accuracy because this seat of the pants writing might lead you down alleyways that are actually quite factually incorrect? Yes, yes. I do what I call the skeleton of about 60,000 words. Then I come over, I'll come to Britain. So I've been in Caithness three times and I'll then walk the ground, but I do a lot of research. I love history. So researching for me is no hardship. I've learned a lot about World War II and I found the most extraordinary things. Like There's a ship in the second book and I decided I wanted to find out its identification number. Now, I could have made it up, but I said, no, no, I want it to be real. So I do go to that trouble. I got into the record of German naval ships and found its number. And just on that depth of research, there's... On the outside cover of book two, you'll notice there's a little tape that runs across the bottom with some encryptions on it. I think they were called cribs, those little slips of paper. And the letters were random letters, so it's an encryption, not a code. So I decided that one of these things is overheard, the one that's printed on the cover there. So I decided, well, look, I could just have random letters, K, V, J, Z, whatever, 
But then I thought, no, no, it's got to work. So I taught myself some basic linear transposition encryption. And it was fascinating. It took me about six hours. But that code works. So if anyone wants to do it, they can do it. It'll work. (laughs) I am prepared to put that much research into it, even if no one ever did it. You're following in a great tradition of crime solvers who are clergymen. I'm thinking of Father Brown and Grantchester. Do you think that Clement Wisdom is going to continue into more books in the series? Are there going to be enough mysteries around the Second World War to occupy him? Yes. Well, the third book is currently with my editor. That is largely set in Cambridge. Uh, There are always historical, genuine historical events that underpin these stories. So the first one was, of course, the creation of the auxiliary units. The second one, uh, set in Caithness, there was a... A German plane strafed the lighthouse on Stroma Island, which is that island in the picture, and they strafed the lighthouse there. It caused no damage and no one was injured. It was on the 22nd of February 1941. So why did they do it? So the whole story is based around that historical fact. There are two other historical facts, and one was the raid on the Lofoten Islands in Norway on the 4th of March 1941. Whilst that doesn't actually appear in the book, there was something that happened at that raid. A ship called the Krebs was sunk in the harbour there, and some very brave British sailors jumped on board a sinking ship to try to retrieve the Enigma machine. They got some code books and some rotor blades. That is also in the story. I do play with it a little bit. I do say that the radar station on Dunnett Head had direct access to Bletchley Park. That isn't true. Some did. There were three, but Dunnett Head was not one. But uh, I figure I can get away with one or two little licenses there. The third book, which is yet to come out, but the historical event behind that is that on the 31st of January 1941, a man called Joseph Jacobs landed in a field in Cambridge near the village of Ramsey. He was a spy. He broke his leg on landing and uh, there was no doubt that he was a spy. He had a radio transmitter with him, quite a lot of five-pound notes code books, a flashing device, what else was there? Oh, and even a black bread sandwich in his helmet. And he fired his pistol into the air a couple of times to attract some nearby farm workers. His other claim to historical fame is that he was the last person executed at the Tower of London. So I use that, but I also have a second person jumping on that day. And I I won't tell you the second historical event because it'll give the story away. (laughs) The fourth book, the fourth book is set in Australia. So I bring Clement to Australia to get involved in the Japanese naval codes called JN25 and the rescue of um, radio transmitting signals intelligence people in the Pacific. Vicky Knox, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, It's been an absolute delight. Thank you so much, Rob. Historical Fiction 